Welcome to the podcast at AntiqueAuctionForum.com. This show is sponsored by Gemmer. Collect and connect at Gemmer.com. Okay, I'm with Gary Sullivan, and we're here today to talk about clock. I'm doing well, thanks. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about how you got into the business to begin with, because everyone has a story. Sometimes it's kind of uh, funny, and sometimes it's really interesting. So what got you started in the antiques business and eventually clocks? I doubt that my story is interesting to anyone, but I'll tell it anyway. Um, My mother was interested in antiques, and so from a very young age, she was carting me around with her to uh, antique shops. We used to spend our summers in Maine, and uh, of course there were lots and lots of antique shops in the area where we were, and uh, that was something that she enjoyed doing, and I did as well. So from about the age of 10, I was visiting antique shops with her, and uh, I started collecting the things that I could afford, like antique bottles, you know, for 25 cents or 50 cents. It's a familiar story, and uh, moved on to uh, telephone pole insulators and coins and stamps and all of those things that that kids uh, collect, and uh, I was off and running. Now, we've talked in the past, and I think at one time you were into what my family was in, myself, as well as the oak, when it was... uh, Golden Oak years. Were you into into selling the Victorian and oak as well? Sure. Uh, Fast forward from age 10 to uh, uh, my late teens, early 20s, and I specialized in oak furniture. I shared a shop with a couple of other guys, and uh, we sold a lot of oak dressers and roll-top desks and file cabinets and stacking bookcases and things like that. And that was what was popular in the 70s. There was a good market for it. And everything was refinished. uh, And we were selling things to uh, truckers who were filling up tractor-trailer trucks and shipping the stuff to California. And that's what was hot. But uh, when the 80s came along, along, that market uh, really fizzled out. Yes, my family did business in Colorado. ended up actually moving to Colorado and working for a buyer um, that, you know, my father used to sell to. And that guy refinished everything basically out there. And you're right, the lawyer's bookcases, the clawfoot tables, the press back chairs, all that stuff, how exciting that was. <laughs> and uh, now the market is pretty soft these days. And, uh, and the people paid a fortune for it, and it's not worth a quarter of what they paid for it. It's really hard for them to swallow that, hey, this is an antique, and it's not as valuable as it was. That's kind of the luck of the draw, and uh, that turn-of-the-century oak furniture that was so popular in the 70s, it fell out of fashion. And uh, I have to dispute your assertion that press-back chairs and round oak tables were ever exciting, but... uh, (laughs) Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, had had people collected something different in, in that era, it may have gone up in value. But uh, that was one category that was very popular that went down. You know, I, I still keep in touch with um, the guy I worked for when I was in my 20s. And now he's, I think he's in his 80s. And he was telling me the other day that in the Boulder, Colorado area, that oak furniture is still popular. I can hardly believe it. But um, that would be one of the only places in the country, really, that it's uh, that it's holding in. Well, that market has held up uh, in the West to a much greater degree than it has here on the East Coast, uh, and and I think the market was stronger then uh, as well. That's why so much of this furniture was shipped from 
east to west. Okay, so where along the line did all of a sudden you fall in love with clocks? And and it's quite a path, and we're going to talk about the Antiques Roadshow and your involvement with that and, and how this has grown for you over the years. How did all that come about? It was really by happenstance. Uh, I, in my teens, uh, taught myself how to fix furniture, quote-unquote, uh, refinish. Uh, my my brother had done some of that, and he gave me some pointers on how to refinish things. And my, my parents had bought a, a big uh, Victorian house in Newton, Massachusetts, which is a suburb of Boston, and it, and it was an estate. Uh, they bought it complete with all the furniture that was in it, which rarely happens anymore, but, um, you know, so there were generations of furniture in this house, and a lot of it had been relegated to the basement or the attic, and uh, and it was in poor condition. So I started pulling pieces out of the attic and re-gluing them and refinishing them and fixing them up, and uh, uh, when I was about 17 or 18, about 17, I guess, I walked into a local antique shop and asked the guy if he had anything to be repaired. And he gave me something to fix, and that worked out, and gave me something else. And, and uh, you know, I started doing some work for him, refinishing and repairing antiques. And it just so happened that he specialized in clocks. And, uh, you know, he also sold furniture and other types of things. But uh, so I was working on clocks, you know, from the very beginning, and he introduced me to some other clock people. And uh, I very quickly learned that I could make more money by buying something that was a wreck and fixing it up and regluing it and, you know, patching the veneer or whatever problems it had and refinishing it and selling it. I could make more money doing that than repairing things for other people. So, you know, I got into uh, buying it at a flea market or whatever, fixing it a little bit, and then selling it to the dealers so that they could sell it in their shops. That's great. Now, when we were talking the other day, you mentioned that you have a video up on how to take a tall clock or what people normally call a grandfather clock apart. I'm going to tell you, and I haven't looked at your video, but I'm going to tell you how I would think you would do it. And uh, first of all, I would say you'd very carefully take off the weights and pendulum. Then you take off the finials if there are any. <clears throat> then you slide the bonnet forward to take the bonnet off. Did I miss something? And then if the movement is actually loose and can be taken out, then you take the movement out. Did I get any of that right? You got almost none of it right. <laughs> so, so you never take the weights and the pendulum off before you slide the hood off. Uh, because because the weights and the pendulum are what stabilize the movement as you're sort of jiggling the hood off. Um, you want to have those hanging there to keep the, the movement from tipping forward out of the case and, and uh, causing damage to you or it. Um, so it's a process that has to be done in the correct order. It's not difficult. It just has to be done right. Uh, and... Um, Maybe we should just send people to my site to watch the video, GarySullivanAntiques.com, and somewhere in there we've got instructional videos, and there's a uh, there's a how-to on how to take apart a uh, tall case or grandfather clock. But when we posted it a few years ago, I was thinking that we'd have, you know, maybe a hundred people or a few hundred people coming to the site who would like to learn how to do that, uh, and it's got something like. 7,000 or 8,000 views. Uh, so, 
well, we must have done something right. People uh, are, are going to the web to try to figure out how to take apart and reassemble their grandfather clocks and, and how to ship them. And it's important that you do it right so that it's not damaged. Well, I guess I'm pretty lucky that I have never damaged any clocks. Um, but uh, that is interesting. I never thought of it. But you're right about stable, stabilizing it. Um, the, so anyone listening to this, don't listen to anything I say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, um, every once in a while you get the tube chimes. And those are a little tricky. Those have always been hard for me to remove. Like on the Tiffany clocks or, or the Hershetti movement clocks, they're silver tube chimes with the string around them, and those are pretty difficult to take apart. Have you had any, uh, any, is there any words of wisdom on how to remove those carefully? Not really. You just have to unhook the strings that hold them in, in place. Uh, and that's outside of my area of expertise. I specialize in early American clocks that uh, that are from the pre-production era so clocks that were made by individuals before about 1820 and what what you're discussing the the uh, so-called hall clocks made in the late 19th and and first half of the 20th century they were made by companies uh, in in factories uh, and they tend to have those long tubular gongs uh, but uh, that that's kind of outside of my area Okay, um, so let's talk about the colonial clocks. I mean, a lot of times some of these early clocks have the dreaded, I call them dreaded, wooden movements. And a lot of those are 30 hours or, you know, they're, they're short span as far as their weight. Um, what is your feeling about the wooden movements? To me, they were always tricky. Um, how do you maintain a clock like that? Well, most people don't. Uh, the the clocks with with wooden movements are a little bit more difficult to maintain, but a, a good clockmaker can uh, lubricate them and and adjust them so that they run reasonably well. But because the gears are made of wood, they're subject to the expansion and con contraction of uh, you know in the atmosphere. You know, as the weather changes, uh, gets more or less humid, and the diameter of the gears change, and you can run into trouble there. But um, some people run them, but uh, in in many cases they don't. Uh, they view them as furniture, you know, uh, not as a timekeeper. Uh, so I've got a few clocks in in my house, but they're not running. If I need to know what time it is, I look at the microwave or the <laughs> or the uh, the cable box. Um, I I view these things as as sculpture as you know beautiful pieces of furniture and I think a lot of people feel the same way particularly with the wooden works clocks they're they're often in you know interesting folky painted cases and those are the most des desirable ones anyway and uh, most people who have those don't run them now I have a few friends that have sold tall clocks over the years and the market at us on certain levels has dropped considerably um, but has maintained, as we say in the business, almost across the board, the very best of the best seems to hold on. Um, what's your feelings about that in general? Well, it's true of most of the market. The, uh, the, the better pieces, the high-end pieces, have tended to hold their value, and the entry-level pieces have not. Uh, they've gone down. Um, there are fewer young people furnishing with traditional antiques, and it's supply and demand. So there's a lot of it coming on the market from the World War II generation uh, and uh, fewer young people to absorb it. So 
Um, but I think the, the area of the market that's been most affected is, you know, that lower end, the, the unsigned clocks, you know, the ones where we don't know who made them, uh, or clocks that have a few condition issues, you know, maybe they're restored or over-restored uh, and were never terribly original or valuable to begin with, you know, that, that market has gotten hurt. But, um, you know, if you have uh, good pieces by known maker, makers uh, in, in good condition, they've, they've held their value very well. And if you have an extraordinary piece, uh, the very, very best, that's held its value very well. And in some, play, some cases, it's uh, gone up. Earlier, we were talking about buying and selling oak, and then you're working on clocks, things like that. What was the transition for you to get into the high-end things that you are into today? It was actually a very slow transition. Uh, in the 70s, I dealt in uh, turn-of-the-century, early 20th century oak furniture because that was, that's what was popular. Uh, in the 80s, I uh, handled a lot of classical furniture, empire furniture. Uh, that's what was popular. Uh, in the 90s, I did a lot of estate liquidation. Uh, all the while, I was you know, specializing in clocks and handled a lot of uh, clocks. But uh, uh, it was a gradual uh, transition. So what was the first time you really stepped up and, and you really got something amazing? Uh Boy, I, I don't. I'd have to think for a while on the first time I got something amazing, but I, I can tell you about the first time I stepped up, which was not a good experience at all. <laughs> um, I was, uh, let's see, that would have been 1983. I was in my mid 20s and uh, had been uh, buying and selling and kind of working my way up, uh, and had aspirations to handle, you know, good early American furniture from the 18th and early 19th century. Uh, and I had an opportunity to buy a slant-lit desk um, that uh, seemed to be a good price at $3,500. And uh, so I bought it with another another guy in, in partnership. And uh, we put it in an auction expecting to make some money. And uh, as it turned out, it had some problems and it sold for $1,500. So uh, after the auctioneer's commission, I got less than half of my money back. And my wife cried, and uh, had it been up to her, I never would have taken another uh, risk uh, or bought anything ever again. But you know, I had to get back on the horse and uh, uh, and you know and keep at it. And it was a it was a lesson. I, I learned I learned a lot from it, um, and uh, I just kept on kept on going somehow. Yeah, I think that anyone that's really in the business long enough has those type of stories. The College of Hard Knocks, as they say. You know, they're all lessons, and I have a, quite a few stories myself on things. But, you know, it's funny. They always seem to lead to something else. All the, all the failures seem to lead to something else, and you have to get up and, and try again. Well, that's how you learn. Uh, as, as dealers, we have a lot of knowledge, uh, and a lot of it was gained through making mistakes. We have to know. We have to know more than, more than the next guy because... Uh, uh, you know, if you if you don't, you're uh, you're making mistakes and and losing money. But uh, uh, if you if you don't lose money in the antiques business, if you always make a profit, you're not taking enough risks uh, because it is a it is often a guessing game. Uh, you know, each piece is different from the next, and 
and uh, we're establishing value based on comparing it to the database in our heads of other similar pieces and just trying to extrapolate what this thing ought to be worth and so if you don't if you never lose money you're not taking any risks and you're probably not doing very well in the business i have a friend picker that says if i'm not buying i'm not making any money that kind of dovetails with that i've always said i make money at the point of purchase uh, because you can't sell from an empty wagon, as they say. And the most difficult thing for me is finding good pieces at a fair price where I can make a profit. If you have something terrific, it's not hard to sell. Um, there, are, there are always buyers out there for the right thing. It's finding it at the right price that's difficult. So, uh, so uh, that's when I feel that I make money, when I find it, rather than when I sell it. I'm going to ask you this question right off the cuff. What is the very favorite clock you ever owned? Who's going to be listening to this? <laughs> I'm not going to answer that one. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. I've had so many favorite clocks, you know, clocks that I thought were spectacular. It really would be difficult to uh, to pick. And if I picked one, then I'd be leaving out some others, and that wouldn't be fair. All right, well, let me ask this question then. What is the holy grail for you out there that you haven't found yet that you would love to have? I guess the the holy grail would be multiple holy grails. Uh, um, what what I'm really searching for, you know, that, that pot of gold for me uh, is just the extremely rare examples that were only made in, in very small numbers uh, Lemuel Curtis, a Concord, Massachusetts clockmaker, uh, made you know a handful of of clocks called Girondol clocks, mm. uh, and you know those are rare as hen's teeth, as they say. And uh, you know I'd love to find one of those. Uh, Simon Willard, the preeminent early American clockmaker, uh, made a number of uh, clocks that are extremely rare, like his lighthouse clocks. Um, his uh, wall timepieces uh, made in Grafton. So things like that that uh, you generally only see in, in museums or in very high-end collections. You know, that's what excites me to, to hear about or find something like that that's potentially available. Okay, now here's, a, here's another question for you. Let's take um, Gary Sullivan prior to the Antiques Roadshow and then Gary Sullivan on the Antiques Roadshow. How has that changed your life? I've got a lot more emails to deal with. Um, it, it, it hasn't uh, changed my life a, a lot. Uh, I'm, I'm still doing the, uh, the same things. Um, and it really has increased the number of emails we get. A lot of people have uh, questions, and they, they, they see me on Roadshow or, uh, or find me on the Roadshow website and... Uh, you know, when they're searching for clocks and they, they send an email. But um, I, I would say that life is pretty much the same now as it was before, before I started. And I, I, think this is, uh, I think this will be my eighth year, maybe, something like that. So uh, there have been people who have been doing it twice as long as, as I have. Uh, so I'm one of the newbies. Now, recently you were in the White House, and that's what I'd like to talk to you about. Um, was that, did that all start from... In appearance, your appearances on the roadshow? No, it was unrelated. I'm actually uh, writing a book on early American musical clocks, uh, which are very rare. They are something like uh, 
uh, 75 of them that are known to survive. And uh, it just happened that the White House collection includes an exceptional example, as does the U.S. Department of State diplomatic reception rooms. The, they, they have a collection of early American antiques that includes a musical clock. And so I needed to see both of those for my research so that I could include them in this book uh, that is just about done. And I left those two clocks, uh, you know, uh, for last because they were more difficult to get to than most of the others. Uh, but uh, uh, most people don't realize that the, the White House has a fantastic collection of early American furniture. Um, and the diplomatic reception rooms, um, they have one as well. I mean, two really world-class collections. Few people see them, but they're published in, in books, and uh, they, are, they are fantastic. So what was it like being in the White House? Did you have to um, be there at a certain time or anything like that, not to disturb the, uh, the first family? It was uh, it was really exciting to to be there. It made me feel much more special than I really am. Um, it uh, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was great. It's certainly a highlight of my uh, nearly forty year career in the uh, in the antiques business. Um, but uh, yeah, it was interesting. I uh, uh, I did not get to meet the <laughs> for the first family. They had no idea that I was there. <laughs> Uh, but uh, yeah, we we had to stay out of the area where uh, you know where they go, and there you know there's a private area you know where the where the family uh, lives, and uh, um, they do sometimes pass through the area of this clock that I uh, that I was to look at. So my appointment was uh, was had to be uh, scheduled to a particular time to work around when the family might be in that area. Now, thinking about the musical clocks, let's talk about, while we're on the subject, uh, an American musical clock. Can you describe how that works? And, um, and the second part of the question, were the uh, pieces in the White House fully functioning? Yes, the, uh, the musical clock uh, that I examined in the White House was made by Effingham Embry, a well-known clockmaker who worked in New York City uh, this particular clock was made around 1800 uh, and plays six different tunes. Um, and uh, it, it is fully functioning. They don't typically run it, um, uh, at least not the music part. Uh, it, uh, it usually is keeping time, but the, but the function that makes the music is uh, usually shut off. All right, so what advice can you give Let's just say the novice collector, someone that's interested in clocks in general um, and wants to start collecting. What would you give them for the best advice on how to learn, how to start, and how to not make mistakes? Well, it's more difficult than it used to be. When, when you and I started as collectors, there were lots of antique shops uh, out there, and you could wander into a shop and look around and get into a conversation with the proprietor. And that's how I learned was from, from uh, dealers, you know, hanging around at, at the shops and uh, asking questions and, and looking at things. Uh, there are so few shops today, that's a lot harder to do. Uh, the way business is conducted in the 21st century is largely through auctions. 
so the next best thing, I guess, is to go to auction previews and look at the things that are being offered for sale and talk to anyone who will talk to you. Um, you know, the people who work at the auction house are there to, to help you and, and answer questions. And, you know, sometimes you can get into a conversation with, uh, with other uh, people who are, you know, there to look at things. So uh, I would say just uh, pay attention and, and uh, uh, ask questions about what you're interested in, uh, get some reference books, and uh, just start gathering knowledge. There's a lot to be learned uh, from the internet, you know, there are, um, you know, videos and uh, you know, there's a lot of information out there. You just have to look for it. One thing I often bring up is uh, in these shows is fakes and reproductions. Now, there's not, I would say clocks is lighter on that compared to most. But um, one, of the, one of the people I wanted to talk about, since I have you right here and it just came to mind, is the Stennis clocks, Elmer Stennis. Um, do you ever handle any of those? From time to time, and those are um, mid-20th century clocks made as copies of early American clocks, and I've had several through the years. Um, uh, Elmer Stennis, uh, his story is, is fascinating, and uh, um, you know, he, he worked in Weymouth, Massachusetts, but uh, if I have the story right and don't get myself into trouble here for, uh, for uh, telling the wrong story, um, he was accused of uh, murdering his wife. And uh, whether he actually did or not, I don't know, uh, and maybe I shouldn't comment on that, but uh, he went to jail. And uh, uh, while he was in jail, he still he continued to make clocks. Uh, they had a workshop there, I guess, and he kept making them. Uh, he did mark some of them while he was in jail, and I forget the exact marking, but I remember that some of them were marked OOB, which meant out on bail. He was making, making clocks. But to continue his story, after he served uh, uh, several years for the murder of his wife, um, he got out and went back to work making more clocks, and uh, and then he himself was murdered. Um, well, uh, <laughs> I don't allegedly. know. Uh, allegedly by his uh, by his son, who was unhappy about his mother being murdered. Uh, but uh, if you read the story, uh, there were so many people connected with him who you know died in mysterious or or you know, strange ways. So I'm glad I was not related to him and didn't, didn't know him. Uh, yeah, and a, a Stennis clock will still bring pretty decent money today. They're still highly collectible. Well, thanks so much, Gary. And one more time, your website, if you could give that out. GarySullivanAntiques.com. And it's, uh, it's a website uh, for early American furniture and clocks. Uh, pretty high end. You know, they're... they're uh, basically the highest end of the market, the type of things that you don't ordinarily see in an antique shop, but what you might see if you went into a museum. That's, that's kind of the level that we're, uh, that we're dealing in. But uh, take a look. Let us know what you think. Well, one more thing. You just made me think of one more thing, and that is how does someone like you, when you sell a really fine piece, how the heck do you replace it? Uh, that's a consideration. You know, some, sometimes I have mixed feelings about selling something that's really wonderful because 
um, you do ask yourself that. How am I going to find another one like this? How am I going to replace it in my inventory? Uh, but somehow they, you know, the pieces do seem to show up. Uh, they're more difficult to get than they used to be. The, the best pieces are, uh, are harder to find. They're, you know, they're, they're rare, and uh, so you have to appreciate them more when they do come around. Well, again, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this podcast at antiqueauctionforum.com. This show was sponsored by Gemmer. Collect and connect at gemmer.com.